peace be to you. In this lesson, we are going to give you hell. I mean the subject of hell. Few today believe in either the devil or in hell. Why do they not believe in the devil when there are so many devilish things about? The communists have tried to convince us that there is no God. Actually, they have not convinced us of that. But they have convinced us that there is a devil. We cannot explain all the evil in the world today. If we are going to deny the evil one, and that was the kind of question that Trench proposed in a very interesting little poem. Men don't believe in a devil now as their fathers used to do. They forced the door of the broadest creed to let his majesty through. There isn't a print of his cloven foot or a fiery dart from his bow to be found in earth or air today, for the world has voted so. But who is mixing the fatal draught that palsies heart and brain and loads the earth of each passing year with ten hundred thousand slain? Who blights the bloom of the land today with the fiery breath of hell? If the devil isn't and never was, won't somebody rise and tell? Who dogs the steps of the toiling saint and digs the pit for his feet? Who sows the tares in the field of time wherever God sows his wheat? The devil is voted not to be, and of course the thing is true but who is doing the kind of work the devil alone should do? We are told he does not go about as a roaring lion now. But whom shall we hold responsible for the everlasting row to be heard in home, in church and state, to the earth's remotest bound, if the devil, by a unanimous vote, is nowhere to be found? Won't somebody step to the front forthwith and make his bow and show how the frauds and the crimes of the day spring up? For surely we want to know. The devil was fairly voted out, and of course the devil is gone. But simple people would like to know who carries his business on. And just as they deny the devil, naturally they deny hell. Because they deny the justice of God, because they deny the existence of guilt and of sin. The basic reason why so many moderns disbelieve in hell is because they disbelieve in freedom and responsibility. 
The existence of hell is one of the strongest arguments in the world for the reality of freedom. God allows us free choice and he allows us to have our choice through eternity. To disbelieve in hell is to assert that the consequences of good and bad acts are not indifferent. It does make a tremendous amount of difference whether you eat TNT or drink tea. And it makes a greater difference if your soul drinks virtue or vice. It is just as difficult to make a free nation without judges and prisons as it is to make a free world without judgment and hell. No state constitution could exist for six months on the basis of that liberal Christianity which denies that Christ meant what he said when he said, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Have you ever noticed that saints fear hell but never deny it? And that great sinners deny hell, but they do not fear it, at least for the moment. The devil is never so strong as when he gets a man to deny there is a devil. The modern man who's not living according to his conscience wants a religion without a cross, a Christ without a Calvary, a kingdom without justice, and in his church, a soft dean who never mentions hell to ears polite. And that is modern Christianity. Why is it that we will praise men for making decisions as to whether they will invest in this farm or in that industry, and at the same time refuse to give them credit to decide whether they will go to heaven or hell for all eternity. Just suppose there was no heavenly judge. Suppose there was no heavenly ledger which recorded our deeds and our sins. Suppose we had no conscience to divulge right and wrong, and no memory to record our crimes and our sins. And suppose there were no formal sentence of a judge would there not be still left within us something pointing to a destiny according to the way we lived? I mean our passions, dreads, melancholies, fears. Here is a secret world which burns inside. It comes out in curious ways. Why is there so much mental distress if there's not already a hell within people? Seeds that are buried seek light. Trees in a dense forest mount to absorb the light. Shells in sea creep to the shore. A piece of glass in a body works its way out. A murder returns to the scene of his crime, for murder will out. All these unholy deeds are poured out to a psychoanalyst. And along with them all the woes and worries and wounds that are troubling them on the inside. 
if the stomach cannot keep poison food in it? Shall not the poison mind vomit the filth that is already in it? And thus, even though they deny God and judgment, they are attesting to it by the effects of their own lives. Their burdened conscience cannot escape reaping a judgment on its own excesses and torturing itself with its own inner hell. Those who have denied the fruit of love see, as it were, the children at window panes looking in, denied wombs and bosoms. And then there is all of the distractions and worries and nights and fears of those who are conscious of their own sin. For as a poet has put it, even an atheist is half afraid in the dark. All those in this world who are in the state of grace have within themselves the seed of glory. And so those who are in the state of mortal sin, even though they deny God, have within themselves the seed of hell. Hell begins here. So does heaven. But heaven does not end here. Neither does hell. You need only read modern literature to see how hell has moved on the inside as people have denied it on the outside. It has become even more real than it was before. Our blessed Lord spoke 15 times of hell. 11 times he mentioned eternal fire. 30 times in the New Testament, eternal fire is mentioned. There's no doubt about what our blessed Lord said. For example... Fear ye not them that kill the body and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him that can destroy body and soul into hell. And again our Lord said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, Hypocrites, you serpents, generations of vipers, how will you flee the wrath of hell? Our blessed Lord often described it as the place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not extinguished. Ordinarily in this earth, a worm feeds on a decaying body and then dies. On this earth, fire consumes fuel and dies. But our Lord is here speaking of the 
worm that never dies, and the fire that never goes out. That worm that never dies is the memory of the past, which is always gnawing at the conscience of the impenitent. Our Lord therefore implied two kinds and two elements of destruction. The internal corruption, the worm, and the external consuming force, which is the fire. Maybe these fires are lighted already in this life by that knowing conscience for having rejected God's love. As the poet Yeats put it, whatever flames upon the night my own resinous heart has fed. And how true that is as each one is locked in his own uniqueness. And Shelley, who knew well this inner hell, described it, and conscience that undying serpent calls her venomous brood to their nocturnal task. The worm that dieth not. Well, we may ask, why should God not warn us? What good would another warning do? That was what the rich man asked. Remember in the parable of the rich man and the poor beggar Lazarus? He asked that someone go back to tell his brothers about how much he was suffering in hell. Now suppose God had granted the request and sent Lazarus back to his five brothers and they recognized him. Do you think that would change them? They would probably demand proof that he had really lived and died and visited the region of the departing soul. The point is that judgment and hell are things of faith, not of sight. If the risen Christ is no proof to the senses, much less can our anyone risen from the dead be a convincing witness and warning to us. If the resurrection of Christ would not convince those who saw it, the resurrection of a dead man who came from hell will not. If a messenger came back from the rich man, the brothers would probably have tried to kill him, just as the Pharisees tried to kill the Lazarus that our blessed Lord rose from the dead. Well, why do souls go, then, to hell? They go to hell simply because they refuse to love. That's the only reason. A young man loves a young woman. He gives her gifts. He is faithful to her, generous and kind. She is disloyal, takes gifts, is traitorous. And after being deceived a thousand times, he still continues to love her. But eventually there comes a moment when he will say, All right, I'm through now. 
Love is finished. And so too God, the hound of heaven, pursues us all during life, inviting us to his kingdom, bidding us sit down at the banquet of the Eucharist, fortifying us with his grace and the sacraments. And we reject, we betray, we are disloyal, we refuse to love and eventually, when death comes, then our life is sealed and that kind of love does not come back. Love is eternal, therefore, and so is hell. What is the one thing that love cannot forgive, can never forgive? It is hate. What is the one thing that life can never forgive? It is death. Why? Because death would mean its destruction. What is the one thing that truth can never forgive? Error. And the refusal to love is eternal. Well, what is the punishment like? Well, the punishment is twofold because there's a double character to sin. Whenever we commit a serious sin, there is, first of all, a turning away from God. Secondly, there is a turning to creature. Take, for example, alcoholism. Obviously, a turning away from God, repudiation of the reason that he has given to us. And thirdly, or secondly, rather, there is the turning to creatures, namely to alcohol. It is fitting, therefore, that there be a double punishment. A punishment corresponding to turning away from God, which is the pain of loss, which is the most terrible of all pains, because that is the loss of, of God himself. And then there is the pain of sense. We are punished by the very creatures which we abused. Now take, for example, that pain of loss. The soul on this life and during it refuses to love God and no longer responds to his love just as a magnet cannot have any influence on wood it never thought of God in fact it rejected all of his mercies but when death comes the soul cannot do without God any longer it's thrown back on its need of God but God is not there it is just as if one had been playing blind man's buff and he takes off the handkerchief and discovers that he's gone blind. The godless universe it has made persists. And the soul knows that it cannot be happy without life and truth and love. And yet it has eternally rejected those. And that is the pain of loss. That is hell. Now take the pain of sense. An alcoholic abuses alcohol and if alcohol were endowed with consciousness it would say to the drunken man I was made by God to be used rationally and with sobriety. You have abused me. I therefore will turn against you. Then there comes the slavery, the excesses, and also the hangover, which are punishments, as it were, that came from alcohol itself. Hence, there will be different kinds of punishment in hell. 
The fiercer the grip pleasures had on a soul in this life, the more fiercely were the fires of torment in eternity. Here are three brief and quick ways of describing hell from our own human experiences. First, hell is the hatred of things you love. A sailor lost on a raft at sea loves water. He was made for it, and water was made for him. He knows that he ought not to drink the water from the sea, but he does. Now, in like manner, the soul was made to live on the love of God. But if a soul perverts that love by salting it with sin, then as the sailor hates the very water he drinks, so the soul hates the perverted love it seeks. Just as the sailor becomes mad because he wants water and cannot do without it, so too the soul in hell wants love, and yet that love has been refused and salted with rejection. The wicked do not want hell because they enjoy its torments. They want hell because they do not want God. Hell is eternal suicide for hating love. A second fact is this. Hell is the mind eternally mad at itself for wounding love. How often during life you said, I hate myself for doing that. And you hated yourself most when you hurt someone that you loved. Now the souls in hell hate themselves most for wounding perfect love. Just as you hurt someone whom you love, they can never forgive themselves for that. Hence their hell is eternal. Eternal self-imposed unforgiveness. It is not that God would not forgive them, it is rather that they will not forgive themselves. And finally, hell is submission to love under justice. We are free in this world. We can be no more forced to love God than we can be forced to love classical music or antiques. Now it happens in this life very often that souls fall out of love. Many a wife is tied to a drunkard or a worthless husband until death do them part. They do not freely love one another. But they are forced in virtue of the justice of their contract to love one another until death do them part. And to be forced to love anyone is hell. The lost souls could have loved God freely, but they chose to rebel against that love, and in doing so they came under divine justice, as the criminal falls from the love of country to its justice. Justice forces the souls in hell, as it were, to love God, that is, to submit to his divine order. But to be forced to love is the negation of love. That is hell. Do not think that if a soul went to heaven, it would be happy. 
Suppose that you hated mathematics and you had to spend your whole life with mathematicians. And that every time you picked up a newspaper or spoke to a friend, they were talking about logarithms and algebra. That would be a hell for you. Well, suppose you hated perfect life and truth and love, which is God and his revelation in Christ our Lord, and you were forced to live with perfect life and truth and love. Why, that would be a hell for you, a greater hell than the one you had. Do not think that God is, is angry because he sentences us to hell. Remember this. The sun which shines on wax softens it. The sun which shines on mud hardens it. There is no difference in the sun, but only in that upon which it shines. So too the love of God shining on a soul that loves him turns to heaven and the love of God shining on a soul that hates him turns to hell. Hell is a place where there is no love. Could anything be worse?